0: with me this week i am incredibly happy we've been well it's my fault that we've been putting this off for a little while and uh, i want to thank him for his patience i have with me uh keith elliott greenberg the now that's a name who is has to be familiar to you if you're a wrestling fan he has co-authored freddie Blassie's biography billy graham's biography rick flair's biography uh he was involved in the volume three of the encyclopedia and he has written for the magazine uh, WWF Magazine Raw Magazine all the special edition publications for years and when I was kind of doing a bit of research it turns out that you wrote the biography for Ben and Jerry so so
1: well, you... I, I didn't write, it wasn't an authorized biography. It was a children's book series about partnerships. Okay. And Ben and Jerry's was one of those partnerships.
0: Oh, uh, and this, I'm guessing it's because you love ice cream just as much as I do. So, you know, that makes you one of the greatest people in the history of the world because you write about wrestling and ice cream. So it's just, that's amazing. <laughs> and so you're um you're in New York at the moment, I guess. I am. I'm
1: home in New York right now.
0: That's awesome. So, um, that is, I mean, that's one of the many different uh, things that you've written. Because, like, I just knew you from wrestling, obviously, and the breadth of subjects that you have written about is incredible, really. So, did you start writing wrestling, or did you start in, like, the press or anything like that? Like, how did you um, develop a passion for writing?
1: I, 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 I was hustling. I was trying to write about anything I could, and I wasn't particular about who I wrote for. But one of the um, things where I was an expert at a very young age was professional wrestling. So when I would pitch myself to magazines and newspapers, they'd go, well, why should we you know, have assign a kid like you doesn't seem to have that much experience? What do you know about that would give you an edge over other people? And I say, well, I know more about professional wrestling probably than anybody on your staff, and that was how I wound up writing quite a bit about wrestling.
0: So, was it specifically uh, the Northeast uh, WWWF, that you knew about, or did you read all the magazines and
1: somehow? No, I, kept... I, I I read all the magazines, and if. Uh, I, I'm looking at my filing cabinets over there. I probably have hundreds of magazines right here where we're sitting from, you know, even the 60s. In fact, there was this guy who was a a drug addict who lived in my neighborhood. And one day he said to me, I liked wrestling when I was a kid. By now he was probably in his mid-20s and I was in my early teens. So he said, why don't you come over to my house and I'll give you my wrestling magazines. So he gave me like great magazines from the early 1960s, which I still have. Uh. In fact, I hope... If this is posted online, now, of course, he's in recovery for decades. And I hope he doesn't watch this because then he'll, he will he may remember that I still have his wrestling magazine. <laughs> There'll
0: be some collector's items in there. You know? So that, like, um, from the uh, magazines that I've seen from that time as well, they were so gory. like They didn't mind having blood on the covers and stuff like that. So like, did that really capture your imagination?
1: It it did. It, at first, it captured my imagination. And of course, after a while, since every cover was bloody, <laughs> it was, you know, par for the course. Uh-huh. But um, that was how wrestling was marketed then. And people tended to be true believers and they tended to believe that. The blood was real, and the feuds were real, and the hatred was real and uh, you know to a degree, I bought into that myself when I was growing up
0: and the newspapers at the time they must have reported on it as if it was a legitimate sporting event as well so um,
1: it... well i i, I wouldn 't go that far okay I, I not not where i lived i mean i 've seen. There's a guy on online, Tom Burke, who's a wrestling historian, who posts a lot of articles, uh, you know, that would be recaps of the wrestling matches. Mm-hmm. And those were written as if they were sport. In New York, they, they would list the match results in the newspaper, but rarely much more. They would sometimes show a photograph of a highlight, but it was almost like, hee-hee, ha-ha, look at the wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. And there, was, and there was always a little bit of sarcasm in the caption. And I remember being in like seventh or eighth grade and discussing with the kid and the kid going, I don't like that. I don't like how they make fun of us as wrestling fans. Uh-huh. But I remember coverage of wrestling was so rare that um, if wrestling was even mentioned in the mainstream media, I would cut it out. Even it was mentioned in a paragraph <laughs> of another article. And I would save it because it happened so infrequently.
0: I did that. I did that in the early 90s. Um, when when SummerSlam 92 happened at Wembley, Like I would say that WWF in particular, and WCW as well, because that was on terrestrial television, which would be the equivalent of um, not cable.
1: Syndicated television. Syndicated television,
0: yeah. Um, and it was probably just as big here in the early 90s as it was during the Attitude Era. Yeah. Um, so when things were in the newspaper, and they would have uh, a lot of uh, promotional activities with WWF as well. So it was really cool when you would see something in newspapers. And it was basically, for me, it seemed like something to have that didn't cost anything as well, mm-hmm. that was wrestling related. Because obviously, like magazines, action figures, videos, all that kind of thing you know, they were sometimes a bit of a rare treat. Um, so any time that anything free happened it was uh was pretty cool for me. Um so like did, did I'm guessing the newspapers reported on like riots and stuff like that because I've seen interviews with Cornett Jim Cornette, who has newspaper articles about when, uh, like a, a guy brought a gun and shot an an event in uh, that Bobby Heenan was at I think in maybe Minneapolis or some or Chicago well, I,
1: I think yeah. it might have been at the Chicago Amphitheater Yeah, if, if memories I could be wrong about that but I'm pretty certain. I've heard that story, and it was the Chicago Amphitheater.
0: Mm. So when did you uh, first start making money as a writer? Did you go to college and uh, take a writing?
1: I I was majoring in writing, but I was already writing by the time I graduated. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I wasn't particularly fussy about what I wrote about or who I wrote for. And so I I, uh, I guess by the time I, I, I graduated college, I was making money regularly freelancing, you know, for a variety of publications. I wrote for porn publications. I wrote for weekly newspapers. Um, you know, I wrote for all sorts of pulp magazines. And at that time, you were able to, if you didn't have a particularly high overhead, you could, you know, make a moderate living doing that.
0: So what, was it largely uh, journalism, uh, like news, or were there like opinion pieces, and, or was it a bit of a mix? It was it was a mix. It was certainly a mix. Mm-hmm. So, what what kind of feedback did you get from that? Did you get feedback from readers? And
1: you know, I got feedback pretty regularly, uh, pretty early on. Mm. Um, even when I wrote for weekly newspapers in Queens, New York, I would get occasionally a letter that would say, "Keep at it, keep going," and just seeing my name in print yeah. was enough of an affirmation for me. Yeah. I didn't grow up in a family where people wrote books or people, you know, created works of art that were seen in museums or people were on television. So just to pick up a newspaper, even a a weekly newspaper and see my name in it, made me feel like I was making it somehow.
0: Oh, Absolutely. I mean, now with social media and everything and YouTube and stuff like that, it's almost easy to turn yourself into someone who can at least be seen by a lot of people. Cool. Um, so... To, I can imagine to have your name in print was a pretty, was a pretty big deal uh, at the time. But you, you did write for uh, Playboy. So what kind of stuff was it? Kind of health-related things, or?
1: No, no, no. I uh, well, Playboy. I did an article in like two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, something like that, on the Iron Sheik, But. Um, no, I, I wrote everything. I wrote. I was. I wasn't particular about what I wrote for, and I wrote for you know penthouse letters. I wrote the letter column. I. I did everything from writing straight out porn to writing articles about sports and about crime for men's magazines, and then I, you know, wrote for newspapers and. You know, I wrote for I wrote general features. I did everything, and, st- I, and still do sometimes. I'm intrigued. Uh, straight out porn. So, like, did you review porn videos, or did you? Oh no, I would, but I would go on the sets sometimes, and I would write about that.
0: How old were you when you were doing that kind of thing? I
1: started at 19. Ah,
0: uh-huh. that must have been just ridiculous <laughs> to be able well, to it, do that. Well, I of mean, thing. <laughs> it's all
1: ridiculous, you know. Once you're. Once you're doing something and it's the way you make a living, yeah. It ceases to be ridiculous and it's it's your living. Yeah. You know, uh, you know and you can make a parallel to the wrestling business. There are people who are standing on the sidelines who don't know the nuances of the wrestling business and they go, "I remember once going through customs into Canada and the guy said, "What, what are you doing in Canada?" I go, "I'm writing." I go, "What do you write about?" He said, "I'm writing about wrestling, at a WWF event." And he goes, you consider that writing? I felt like saying, "What are you stamp passports for a living, and you're telling me? Yeah. But the thing is, to him, he was very dismissive. But when you understand the dynamics of whatever you're writing about, and you're... You, you respect that profession. You respect whatever you're writing about. And you put your heart into it. Regardless of how others may perceive it. Mm. And just to jump forward a little, um,
0: when specifically mcfoley released have a nice day did that put you in a different light to the outside world as a wrestling writer
1: i think it did it i really the big impact that that had was it um it was very affirming to me for one thing the book had even though my aspiration was to co-write books with professional wrestlers uh, the fact that a professional wrestler was the author himself told the world the, the, these are intelligent men yeah. who have great stories to tell, and that made me it made me excited for Mick Foley, who's a, 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 just on a personal level was a person I always respected and liked as a as a human being, a guy I could have seen myself being friends with if professional wrestling never existed. And it also was encouraging to me that obviously the straight world now is embracing of the fact that there are great stories out there. All these stories I've been hearing about in the locker room, all the stories wrestling fans have been telling among themselves, there's a market for that. And they're interesting and they're valid and the world needs to hear them.
0: Absolutely. So um, when you were a teenager, so wh- what area of New York, did you live near the garden?
1: Um, I lived in Queens, New York, okay. so I was able to get uh, get to the garden fairly quickly. Uh, the closest garden to me was the old Sunnyside Gardens, which was a small arena in Queens. But I went to Madison Square Garden quite a bit as well.
0: Do, do you remember the first show you went to?
1: Um, you know, I believe the first show I went to was in Florida because we were visiting my aunt and uncle, and my uncle was a baker at a hotel down in Miami Beach. And I I don't think this was the first show I went to, mm-hmm. but I remember I, I, had a, I had a cousin who was older than me, and there were these guys from the American Legion watching the dressing room. They were elderly men, and they didn't seem like legitimate security guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, my cousin said, he said something to them. He was a military veteran. And we ended up walking into the heel dressing room. And I remember like, seeing Buddy Colt was being uh, given some birthday present by these wrestling groupies. And he was putting the bows, sticking them you know, on his torso and eating a lollipop. And somewhere in this room, I have a photo of that.
0: <laughs> See, I've heard as well those uh, local... May as well be mall
1: cops were absolutely useless when it came to protecting heels from rowdy crowds. Yeah, I, I you know, I wasn't around to witness the, you know, this security machinations back then. But I don't think these guys could have really protected a hor, you know, protected the heels from an angry horde.
0: <laughs> so, did you have a first favorite wrestler? Like, who made an impression on you earliest?
1: Well, interestingly. As much as I loved Bruno Sammartino, a yeah. uh, Freddie Blassie may have been my favorite wrestler as a uh-huh. kid, and it, which is great because I ended up co-writing his autobiography at the tail end of his life. Yeah, but um, in sixth grade, you know, the, when I was about twelve years old, I was graduating one school, elementary school, it's called in the states, mm-hmm. and going into another school, and there was a list of. Favourites, favourite baseball player, favourite athlete, favourite... And I think as favourite athlete, I put Freddie Blassie.
0: (laughs) So were you familiar early on
1: with uh, what he did in Japan, Uh, the whole vampire thing? Uh, I I was not (laughs) familiar with it other than what I read in wrestling magazines. Uh Uh, But we received... um, In New York City, we were fortunate that we were able to receive uh, telecasts of Olympic auditorium matches from Los Angeles that were in Spanish and Freddie Blassie was a heel there. And then he became the most beloved baby face over there. And he was so angry and fiery. And in my mind, believable yeah. that when he bled, I believed he was bleeding when he, Bit someone, I believed he was chomping their head. And once he became a good guy, I felt that that was the only punishment these guys deserved. They had wronged <laughs> Freddie Blassie, and that was what. This is what that this was the payment. How did how
0: did someone like Freddie Blassie back then become a good guy? Is it just he was so bad that he was good sort of thing?
1: I think that happens. I think yeah. you know. I Remember Rowdy Roddy Piper? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, when he when he became a good guy, he had been away for a while. He went to make I think they live. He made to went to make, you know, one of his movies and came back. And the fans had such a deep connection to him, even if they're booing him. You know, I sometimes wonder, as much as fans boo Roman Reigns, if Roman Reigns disappeared for a year and then suddenly showed up again, yeah. would he get a giant pop? Because the fans, even if they're booing him, they're so involved in what he's doing.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And it's kind of weird because I don't talk about new wrestling too much. But when I do with my friend, Roman Reigns comes up a lot. And I think there's something to be said about that, that he is talked about. And it's better to be talked about than not, I guess.
1: Yeah, and you know what? You know, I, see, you know, I go to the arena. I see fans booing him. And, but I never see a fan get up. And go to get a drink while Roman Reigns yeah. is in the ring, and so that says something right there. They're engaged. Yeah, I said that, I always said that about Cena as well.
0: Like, he never got boring chance during his right. matches, and um, I just I don't know. I, I I can understand to a point. I mean, we'll not go too far down this road, but I can understand to a point that maybe fans are maybe too aware of being marketed to now, maybe.
1: But I I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Yeah, sure. I mean, people are smart to what, you know, how they're perceived by whether it's, you know, WWE or any other corporation that's marketing things to them. Mm -hmm. And so they feel somehow empowered by throwing it back at them. But they're still watching. Even if they're booing Roman Reigns, they're still watching the product. And they're still watching Roman Reigns.
0: That's the thing. If the ratings just drop during a Roman Reigns segment or whatever, then I'm sure WWE would take action at that point. But until then, um, it's almost like they don't... It's the same with Cena. They never really need to turn him heel because he is the perfect heel for when situations arise.
1: Um, And and he's the perfect baby face for a large segment of the audience just as Roman Reigns is. You You know, I have a daughter who's now 14, And she certainly doesn't perceive Roman Reigns to be a heel. Now, some of the boys her age do, but she doesn't and certainly didn't when she was a younger kid. She likes, you know, as a well, certainly when she was younger, kid likes the baby faces. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. Um, Well, going back to uh, Freddie Blassie's book, that is one of my favorite books, Um, especially uh, WWE releases as well. Um, who made, because I'm kind of fascinated by this, who made the decision or who generally makes the decision to have someone have their own biography because that's quite an investment and a gamble on whether something like that would sell.
1: I mean, I don't know what went on behind the scenes to determine that. Mm -hmm. I do know that Vince McMahon and Freddie Blassie were exceptionally close and considered each other family. And, um, you know, Freddie Blassie clearly had the connection with both Vince's father and earlier on there was some interaction with Vince's grandfather, according to Blassie. So I think Vince McMahon wanted to take a snapshot of Blassie's era, and he was well aware that that era was fading out. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was the benefactor of that because I got to hear all of Freddie Blassie's stories sitting directly across them.
0: Do you, do you, did you record them on tape?
1: You know, I did record them on tape, and this comes up all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> People say, where are those tapes? And I, th- I threw them out because I'm always trying to clean stuff out because more material is coming in. Yeah. So, so once the book came out, I threw the tapes out. I had the cassette tapes. I threw them out. I said, well, the book is done. And then for a while, I held on to the transcripts. And then I started writing another book, and I needed the space in that filing cabinet. And I said, "Well, the book is written." I kept some material, some research material, but I I, I threw, I threw, you know, the the transcripts out as well.
0: That's understandable. I mean, like one thing, a, a common misconception to me about Vince McMahon is that he's not a wrestling fan. Like, you know, it's amazing how many people would. You know, say that and just assume that. But he is just as much of a historian to me and cares about the history of wrestling as much as
1: anyone else, I would say. In terms well, of. Look, I mean, look at the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, that was Vince McMahon's vision. I mean, you know, Vince McMahon said to me once, We are the caretakers of history. He understood that he was buying up the, the libraries of promotions he might have helped to put out of business. But. He was not ignoring that history either, and that's why the Hall of Fame existed for the WWE. Yes, sure, history is written by the victors. Yeah. But, but there, there is certainly a great appreciation of that history. And you know, now when you look about what we look at, what's going on in the UK, you have Johnny Saint as the commissioner of you know WWE UK. Yeah. That's honoring that whole world of sport era. Yeah, it's
0: a, it's amazing. i have really. I, really really enjoyed the show as well the latest one um with it i'll get off the <laughs> the blasty book but i do love it and it is one of the only books that i had the hardback and the paperback version of as well uh because of the bonus chapter um yeah. when did you know that he was going to make that appearance on raw to promote the book and was it always the plan to write about that for the bonus chapter because obviously the book came out after he passed away didn't it
1: yes um we knew that he would be making appearances to promote the book. Um, at that point, he was very ill. Yeah. And um, Because that was only a few weeks before he died. And he kind of, there was a sense among everybody that he wasn't going to be around too long. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was a bit disoriented when he did that appearance. He, at one point, his wife was with him and he was being driven back home from philadelphia in the limo and he looked around at one point and i his wife might have been laying down in the back seat she had told me this story and he said we have to go back we left her at the arena he forgot that his wife was the limo with him Uh. so so he was fading pretty fast there nobody knew that that would be his last public appearance of course we all hoped that there would be many more public appearances to come mm-hmm. but at least he went out he went out with the with the with the strap around his waist
0: oh he, it, for me uh, that is one of my favorite roles because he stole the show for me and uh that was also the last appearance of hawk on that show as well
2: um yeah.
0: it, it's such a great role. It's uh, like it's at that point now where 2003 i can kind of look back at it in a nostalgic sense um, even though, you know, I am getting old now and <laughs> like 2003 seems quite recent to me now. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the Blessy appearance was, uh, awesome. And just, you were so on point as well and just had some great zingers for Bischoff and, uh, the Devon get the table as well. Just amazing.
1: And, and of course, what made that even sweeter is the fact that Devon and, and Bubba Ray Dudley are from the New York area and grew up as Freddie Blassie fans. Yeah. So they were overjoyed to be doing an angle with classy Freddie Blassie.
0: Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, So when did you start writing for wrestling then? Well, you
1: know, I I can't remember. You know, I wrote an article, maybe in 82, Hmm. about, about Bruno and David Sammartino. It was for Us Weekly. And um, it was about how Bruno wanted his son to go to college and David wanted to follow his father's footsteps. And I remember at the time in the wrestling world, people were surprised, like, wow, a mainstream magazine covered wrestling because people didn't cover wrestling. And from that point forward. I was able, when I would pitch wrestling stories to off, if someone was looking for a wrestling story, I generally got a positive response and was able to write about it. And then, you know, three years later or so, you know, the rock and wrestling era hit. And so it was at the first WrestleMania where um, I was covering that, I think I was writing about it for Us Weekly, among others. And I was talking to Ed Rusciutti, who was the editor of the WWF magazine at the time. Hmm. And he said, why don't you just start writing for us? So I did. I started writing <laughs> for them, first as a freelancer. And then um, then I was on ret- a monthly retainer for 22 years with them.
0: I had different times. Like I don't think it would be that easy now.
1: <laughs> uh, I think it would take a lot more work to do that. But you know what? You never know. I mean, maybe you're... At an event somewhere, and you happen to be sitting next to Triple H, or maybe not Triple H, but somebody who's very close to Triple H, mm. and maybe he'd say, "Hey, I'll talk to Hunter, see what he thinks."
0: So, were you? Are uh, you were at ringside for WrestleMania?
1: Or... I was. I was at ringside for WrestleMania One. Yes,
0: that's crazy. Like I, I mentioned before, that I interviewed Tom Buchanan um, maybe about a year ago now, and that was his first night with the company as well.
1: Well, I mean, which is crazy. And I, I remember Tom mm-hmm. Buchanan. Uh, when Tom Buchanan, he might have been, he may have been freelancing, but then he actually moved down to Connecticut. Yeah. And and I remember the day he moved down, I believe somebody broke into his car. <laughs> and I remember him being rather agitated about that. Mm-hmm. But he's seen things that I never saw because he was with these guys every day of his life, and Tom was, as this was really Tom Buchanan's life. I don't know, if, I know he skydives, I know he snowboards, yeah. but besides that, I don't remember him mentioning much else besides working.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. so um, the article that you wrote uh, for WrestleMania, I guess it got in the, the right hands. Like, did Vince see it at the time? Because I guess any publicity at that time would
1: have been. you know uh, vince <laughs> knew me, vince already knew me at that point okay because i'd already been writing about wrestling and i think the article uh, and again it might have been two or three years before i wrote an article for the sports section of the new york daily news and i remember discussing it with vince mcmahon afterwards oh. uh, at, at some events so he knew my name he knew who i was he probably thought i was a you know, another crazy fan, but at least I was a crazy fan who could do things to benefit the company. And I like the company. Yeah. I only wanted to benefit the company.
0: So were you uh, brought in, because you were field editor for a long time. Yes. Um, so were you brought in as field editor? And for, for listeners, and for me as well, because
1: like, I, I, what is field editor? Is that kind of just working from... Well, uh, well, well f- field editor was a term, and I don't remember who came up with it, but I very rarely came into the office. I mean, more than a year could pass without me going into the office. Did you have an office? Uh, I worked out of my home. Okay. And, and, uh, but, I, um, but I did go to the arena quite a bit, and I did go to events, public events, where the uh, superstars were appearing, and so I was in the field, so I was the field editor. Um, so,
0: as time went on, because you obviously you wrote for the magazine, but as an editor, did that mean that you have to look at other writers' no, things no. and then
1: make changes? Yeah, no, no, I, I didn't. That was just a title that was given me. Uh, you know, once in a while, Luigi Lou, and Frito and I, who was uh, one of the writers there, who's best remembered for uh, being put in the chicken wing by Bob Backlund oh, yeah. when Mister Bethlin. <laughs> You know, Louie and I would sometimes bounce things off of each other. Here's what I'm working on. What do you think about that? Later on, Anthony Calley was another writer, and he and I would sometimes discuss, hey, this is what how I'm thinking of approaching this. Barry Warner was an the publisher there. We would have conversations like that. There was some back and forth and exchange of ideas, but I wasn't like red penciling anybody's copy.
0: In those early days, um, what was the filter process like? Did did everything have to be approved by Vince, and did you have to keep kayfabe and all that kind of thing?
1: We definitely had to keep kayfabe. Yeah. I don't remember necessarily – well, I did have some conversations with Vince, um, where Vince uh, suggested maybe this would have been a better term to use. Okay. and it was very respectful, and it was actually quite impressive because it meant that this guy who was controlling so much had taken the time to read some article in his magazines, in one of his magazines. But I do remember having conversations with Linda McMahon early on, yeah, and um, and she read everything, and we— you know, and I remember he even saying, I know what it feels like when you get in there and you're just looking at the page and you're thinking, what am I going to put on this page? And, you know, she was quite empathetic about the task that we had to do. Mm-hmm. So in terms
0: of creative license, because obviously there are storylines going on on TV and characters are building themselves on TV. Did you have to stick to what was going on on TV or could you control some narrative sort of thing in the magazine.
1: You could control some narrative. Yeah. But it had to be consistent with what was going on on TV and what was going to be going on on TV. Mm. So if, let's say, um, you know, for example, back then, uh, if Randy Macho Man Savage was going to become a, a fan favorite. Yeah. You had to be, there was some awareness there, so we weren't writing stories that would come out two months or a month in the future about how he was vicious and evil. I'm, I'm guessing that uh, even though t-
0: things weren't probably changed uh, as quickly as they were maybe now uh, in terms of storyline ideas or whatever, but that was that hard to keep on top of in terms of, you know, because the, the, the famous story that uh, when Randy Savage won the title
1: at WrestleMania 4, I think something got out. Um, I remember that. <laughs> I, I, and, and at the time, I was also writing for USA Today as a ah. freelancer. And, and I would occasionally write articles about WWE for USA Today. So there was a little bit of crossover. Mm-hmm. But I remember, like, one of the news editors at USA Today saying to me almost breathlessly, hey, you know, what's the inside story? It says that Randy Macho Man Savage, and it wasn't that he was going to win the title. I think it was said that he was going to lose the Intercontinental title. Okay. And and, um, (laughs) I don't exactly remember... How that came about, I, I maybe there was a plan for him to lose the intercontinental title, and maybe he didn't. I don't remember the specifics, mm. but I remember people being highly agitated that uh, that much of the magic was being revealed. Mm. So, were you
0: encouraged to um, not break kayfabe, but? talk about real life interests of the wrestlers just to kind of give them a bit more of a third dimension sort of thing?
1: Um, it, was, it was a fine line. And maybe in some ways it's a line that, you know, people keep now in, in, in some instances. Yeah. yeah. I remember writing an article that I suggested about second generation wrestlers. So Brett was in there and Randy was in there. Um, no, Randy was not in there lanny was in there leaping lanny Papo was in there but we were not acknowledging that randy was angelo Papo's son because then they would know that leaping lanny Papo was randy savage's brother and even though fans in you know the mid south territory knew that that was something we were not acknowledging so lanny Papo was in there Kelly Kaniski, who was Gene Kaniski's son, was in there. Yeah, Kelly had a few matches, didn't he, in WWF? Yeah. Yeah. And the Rougeau brothers were in there. But, But we didn't cross certain lines. Like, even Jake... I don't even remember if Jake was there yet. Yeah. But I doubt we would have said that his father was Grizzly Smith. Yeah. I um, probably would have kept kayfabe on that.
0: D- did you ever... Um, I'm really fascinated by David Rogers. Did you ever write anything about him and Buddy during that very late period of Buddy in the WWF?
1: No. I, I, um, I met Buddy Rogers a couple of times, but I never really interviewed him and he was one of those guys who i wanted i was intrigued by him and he would because he he died i think in 92 i never really got to know him mm. uh, you know like a guy like ivan Koloff, even though he wasn't really involved in the company over time i did get to know him um i uh You know, another guy, sometimes I think about um, Greg Oliver, the Canadian wrestling writer, and I have discussed this, like, who's the guy you'd most want to interview now? And, you know, uh, I never met Don Leo Jonathan, who's still alive. Uh I've I've been fortunate to meet the Destroyer. You know, I think about guys who are still around. I never interviewed Danny Hodge. Uh, So there are guys, you know, and certainly there's no shortage of guys. I never interviewed Johnny Saint. You know, you talk about guys from the UK. There's lots of guys I'd like to get a chance to interview.
0: Does that give you the the impetus to actually do that, though? Especially when you see guys, unfortunately, pass away. Because, like, I don't don't know if you know a guy called Kenny Casanova, um, but he co-wrote Kamala's book and co-wrote Dangerous Danny Davis' book. And uh, he just finished co-writing Vader's book, which, I mean, the timing's just insane. Um, So do you find yourself making those uh because i'm guessing you did with the iron cheek um do you kind of make those kind of co- connections yourself or is it WWE that kind of request that you do or
1: well they, they've given me when i've written for them they've given me a lot of freedom about who i could interview Yeah. um i'm appreciative of who's around because it's history we're yeah. chronicling history and so um i you know obviously I'd like to interview as many of the greats as possible and get them to tell their stories before they're not here anymore. Like, uh, you know, I'll say this on the record. I've been speaking for years with Offa from the wild Samoans. We were talking about Roman Reigns, Roman Reigns, uncle. Yeah. And you know, uh, we've d- discussed doing his story or a story about the Samoan legacy and, you know, professional wrestling while Afa and seeker is still here. I mean, Nef Maivia just died, the guy from whom uh, High Chief Peter Maivia took his name. And yeah, you know, he was, he was I think, 93. So, you know, you can never take for granted that any of these guys are going to be around forever, just like you can't take for granted that we're going to be around forever.
0: This is true. This is true. So um, going back to um, the WBF magazine, um, did you just did you have to go to arenas to interview wrestlers or like you're going to, you're going to shatter the illusion now, but like were those interviews, a lot of them, were they real? Or...
1: Um, I usually at the very least wanted the, uh, the talent to contribute something mm-hmm. to the, interviews. um, and sometimes the talent had a better idea of where their character was going. Sometimes talent would say, Hey man, this is like a, a new, a new character I'm playing. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. But I couldn't quite go into business for myself. It was a WWE house organ. Yeah. And so I just couldn't go off on a on a tangent and start creating scenarios that might be counter to where they wanted to go with the character.
0: Mm-hmm. So when... Um... The WWF magazine franchise kind of grew, and the special editions came out, and all that kind of thing. Uh, I, I'm talking pre-Raw magazine. Uh, were you involved in like the the poster magazines and the uh, the publications, like the annuals, and all that kind of thing? Yes, I was. So, uh, w- were they more? Uh, were you more in charge of those projects than maybe the magazine sort of thing?
1: No, I, I was never in charge. I was just a writer mm-hmm. and. Whoever was in charge would discuss it with me, and we would discuss what approach we wanted to take. I remember they used to do the WWF spotlights, which would spotlight Brutus the Barber Beefcake or Greg Hitman Harder, or or Jim Duggan. And I usually wrote the historical uh, section and then a couple of other things, you know to maybe two other articles, maybe three other articles in the magazine.
0: It, it, don't get me wrong, I I do love Brutus Beefcake, but was it hard to get like sixty pages on Brutus Beefcake?
1: <laughs> you know what? You can write sixty <laughs> pages about anything. I mean, there certainly he'd had enough matches that you could write. You, you, you had sixty pages worth. There were enough storylines. He'd true. been a you know he'd been a a tag team champion. He was. In the middle of things, he'd become the barber. He had the barbershop. There was no shortage of things to write about.
0: This is true. This is true. So when um, Vince Russo came in, did he come in in 94?
1: Uh, I think it sound, that sounds about right. That was when <laughs> I first remembered the Vic Venom kind of stuff. Like, what?
0: Oh, That's when I first remember the Vic Venom
1: articles. Yes. Um, yes. And I think Vic Venom may have been a character he might have played Vic Venom on a, a radio show that he did. Mm-hmm.
0: did. Did you feel a change in dynamic when he came in? Because obviously it was 94 and things hadn't really changed. It, you know, it wasn't the Attitude Era at that point. So um, did he change the feel of how the magazine was presented even back then?
1: Or Yes, he did. He did. Um, and uh, I think eventually Vince and him grew to appreciate each other. He certainly was not trying to defy Vince. He was trying to bring something different to the product. Mm. And I remember, you know, this is before things were emailed. So I remember Russo and I were friends and still, you know, even though we don't talk much, we, we are, I do consider him a friend. And that has nothing to do with wrestling. Uh, It has to do with just personally, we like each other and, you know, man to man. Uh, But, um, I remember him calling me up and saying, let me read this to you. And it was an article that said, I'm going to mention the three letters you thought you'd never hear here. Yeah. WCW. And I'm like, holy shit, Rusa, <laughs> You're really going to do this? And he did it. And I think that, you know, he was trying to break a certain wall. And obviously nothing was going to go through if Vince didn't approve it. And Vince approved it, and they ran with it.
0: Yeah, that was the first Raw magazine. That uh, that blew my mind. And I was reading it recently, and I mentioned it to you as well, because it was probably the first article on Vader. And um, obviously, with everything that's just uh, happened as well, it was uh, great to read it, and uh, you wrote that article. Um, I I don't know if you remember, but uh, you probably do. This was 1993, and it was heavy during the... um, the steroid trial and all that kind of thing. And WWF magazine posted a kind of a statement on Billy Graham. Do you, do you remember that? Did you write that? I, I remember it, but I had nothing to do with it. Did that just stand out to you? Like a sore thumb? Like, was it talk around the office and all that kind of thing? And yeah, no,
1: I, I wasn't in the office. Um, I think obviously it was an effort to discredit, uh, the W whoever was criticizing the company. Yeah. Maybe, uh, take a preemptive approach, but I was not involved in that. I was just writing my, you know, hype for the upcoming wrestling, you know, pay-per-views.
0: Well, I think it had to, um, well, there was nothing like it in any of the magazines up until that point, I would say. Um, So it must have been a pretty big deal, though. Then things obviously were drastic enough for something like that to... Um, be done at that point because like WWF Magazine even though they have this worldwide platform with the magazine they never really used it to get on their soapbox at the time um, and you know it, it just it just seemed like a crazy thing because I remember reading it as a kid and thinking because I didn't really know what was going on and uh, but now I understand it much more
1: I, and that was never broken down to me again I was not involved in that mm-hmm. and I, you know I'm glad I wasn't I You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a a number of lawyers who were involved in that. Uh, But that obviously had to do with whatever legal strategy. No one ever said that to me, but that's what I'm assuming. And, uh, you know, that was in the magazine. And I just kept doing my thing. And I just tried to stay out of that. I mean, because, you know, you say it seemed like a desperate thing to do was a pretty desperate time. I mean, you know, there was a fear that the whole company could go under. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that 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 was why you obviously saw an article like that.
0: Mm. The, um, before we get into it, because I want to talk to you about the Raw magazine. Um, when things with WWF magazine happened, like, uh, I'm getting nerdy now, but December 94 magazine, it had Randy Savage on the cover, and there was a big article on him, and how he was going to stay with WWF forever and all that kind of thing. He was out of the company <laughs> Like By November of that, yes. Did, was there almost like panic when that kind of thing happened?
1: I mean, I wouldn't say there was panic. I mean, no one was happy. I mean, there was a wrestling war going on. Yeah. And wrestling wars had been going on, you know, since the early part of the 20th century, both in the US and the UK. You know, you've always had rival promotions and people poaching talent and in Japan and Mexico as well. So was it panic? There was certainly discontent when a top talent suddenly went somewhere else.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, and you know, it, it, very different. But um, I've just been watching a lot of stuff from 92. And when the January 93 magazine came out, it had nails on the cover. <laughs> and he was gone. Like I think he was actually gone the week the magazine came out. So I just found that hilarious. But <laughs> um, I, I don't think people at WWE found it hilarious. <laughs> no, I'm sure not. Um, was there ever frustration that um the magazine took two months to hit the shelves because you know like uh pro wrestling Illustrated and all that kind of thing in power slam in the uk were able to report on things a lot quicker
1: well yeah of course there was frustration because obviously you'd love to be as up to date as possible and that's probably one of the reasons why there's no longer a wwe magazine yeah. because you can just get the message out so much faster. You know, who's going to wait for the magazine to appear on a newsstand to get their news? Um, you know, one of the other things I remember discussing with the other people who worked there was the people of Pro Wrestling Illustrated could essentially make up whatever they wanted. Now, we said, oh, without any repercussions, because we say, oh, that must be fun to just wildly speculate. Mm-hmm. When I read Bill Aptor's book, I realized that wasn't quite the case because they still had to suffer the wrath of the various promoters if they speculated about something that the promoters didn't want out
0: there. Mm. So was there ever any um, issue with when you had uh, photographs from pay-per-views in the magazine? Not necessarily ringside photographs, because you'd always see... George Napolitano or whoever, Bill Epted, but the ones that were taken from the crowd and the lightning's terrible and all that kind of thing was it?
1: I mean, again, I was not involved in that end. I was a writer. Yeah. I, oh, I, you know, I wasn't writing for Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I was writing for WWE Magazine. Mm-hmm. So what, once in a while, somebody might open up one of those magazines and say, "Oh, look at this! Who took this picture? Or this is terrible. Why would anybody want?" to buy this magazine when we, our guys are right right next to the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you'd hear that, but I wasn't involved in the behind-the-scenes office stuff about let's figure out who's doing this and let's prosecute them. Um, you know, I, again, I was a wrestling writer. So how, uh, it's kind of a two-part question, um,
0: did you write for the website and did you keep writing for the magazine right until the
1: end? Yes. No, I didn't work right for the magazine until the end. My retainer ended in 2007, and although, well, I did have a com. A new publisher came in, and um, he had a lot of ideas of how he wanted to modernize the magazine. I remember and, that. Yeah. And I think one of the big changes was these, you know, long Q and As and long crafted articles seemed to him like part of another era. And he was trying to keep it like punchy and contemporary. And this is no disrespect to him. That was his strategy going in. Uh And I remember him telling me that he wasn't renewing my retainer. And he said, you know, I looked at what we were paying you. And I said, who's this guy who I've never met once? I've never seen him in the office once. And he goes, you know, with this amount of money that we're paying you, we could probably get like two full-time writers, two kids right out of college who were wrestling fans. And I'm like, no argument from me. And he said, but I will throw you freelance where I think it's appropriate. And, And he did. He didn't throw me as much freelance as I would have liked, but he did continue throwing me freelance. So I had... You know, I had disappointment, but not bitterness. The disappointment was not being there in the dressing room every couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was... I remember going on another trip, and I don't even remember who it was for. But it was for one of my television clients, I believe. And it was WrestleMania weekend, and seeing... You know, getting on a plane to Chicago and seeing George Napolitano and he was going to cover WrestleMania and feeling this immense sadness that I wasn't going to WrestleMania. Yeah. I can Um, imagine. You know, I was at the the past WrestleMania and I uh, wrote a couple of articles for the USA Network's website and WWE took care of me that weekend and got me into the Hall of Fame and, Got me into WrestleMania, and I'd been, I was at Raw 25, so I kind of feel like I still have my fingers in the business, and it feels a lot better even to play a peripheral role than be completely excluded.
0: At, at this point, do you get more um, joy out of writing historical articles than writing about new stuff? Like, did was there a period when your interest maybe in the WWE product kind of waned a little bit, or?
1: I think that happens to everybody. There were certainly periods where I was with the company where I was less enamored with the storylines than I had been in the past. Mm -hmm. And then after I left being on retainer, there were storylines that I started to like again, you know, and but I wouldn't say my interest would only be historical articles like when I worked on the um, on the encyclopedia in 2016. We divided it up between the three co-authors, and I wrote both a lot of the historical stuff and the NXT stuff. And the NXT stuff I found very exciting. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we were talking about the British uh, Championship tournament. I'd love to write about that stuff. That stuff really turns me on. So you know, I'm not locked in the past, and I'm not saying, oh, it was great when Bruno was was the champion. Yeah. You know. It was great when Bruno was the champion, but it's also great to see, you know, Pete Dunn as the champ, as, yeah. as K champion.
0: The Divorce Album is a unique new concept from one of my favorite artists, Secret Friend. The Divorce Album is a unique concept split into two sides, mine and yours. Mine features six new songs from Secret Friend, and yours features those same six songs performed by six other artists. All of the songs are breakup songs, but let's face it—the best songs usually are. Featured artists include Taylor Locke, Sam Robson, Carla Kane, Wyatt Funderburk, Willie Wisely, a certain Roger Joseph Manning Jr., and many more. The divorce album is available now from your favorite streaming or download service. For more information, go to www.thedivorcealbum.com. With the website, did you did you write any content for that then?
1: Or... I, I wrote a column for a little while, mm. and I and I can't quite remember what the tone of it was, but I do remember writing a column uh, for a brief period of time.
0: Uh, were you ever asked to have a persona as a writer in the sense no, of like Vic Venom? And... No,
1: no, I wasn't, and I and I wasn't interested in it. I kind of look at myself. I, I, I'm the character that I play. I Yeah, I am the character, uh, you know, whether I'm writing about wrestling or writing about true crime or writing about rock music. I, you know, I am who I am, and that's always. And when I wrote about wrestling, I, 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 or when I write about wrestling, I like looking at myself as kind of a, a veteran wrestling scribe, yeah. and that's really who I am. And I didn't want to play another character. I like being who I am, you know. Someone who's an observer of the business, has seen the business change, is excited about the past as much as I am about the future.
0: Yeah. Well, Actually, that's what I was going to ask. With the encyclopedia, the third one was really ambitious because it delved into different wrestling companies as well. Uh, And and I wrote all all of those. So was there a... Was were there limitations on how much space you could take up? Because I'm guessing you were told, right, this is how many pages there are. So did photographs have to be shrunk from previous editions and all that kind of thing? And, yes. Um,
1: so did that, and that, be- that? That's any project like that. You're going to uh, have those kinds of limitations. Mm-hmm. But I did uh, applaud the idea of uh, acknowledging all the other wrestling promotions, and on my suggestion. Uh, the british wrestling promotions were included as well and uh you know that was something i suggested and nobody blinked when i said it
0: uh uh-huh. um do, you, do you, was there a period when well, i guess when WWF or wwe or WE started buying all of the uh the tape libraries and stuff was that kind of a an amazing thing for you to then finally be able to acknowledge the history of wrestling how you felt that you were able to
1: um i was that was, I left, you know, I was on retainer until 2007. So a lot of those tape libraries, those tape library acquisitions took place after the fact. That's true, yeah. So so I wasn't involved in that. Uh, my experience was more the excitement of meeting people like Harley Race and Cowboy Bill Watts, uh, pe- people who had a history in the business that wasn't necessarily, you know, tied 100 percent with wwe yeah and you know that that was very satisfying you know meeting kevin von erich once you know backstage at a show and having a nice honest conversation with him
0: that's really cool so uh, with uh, raw magazine how was that presented to you and like was um, was there a concept in mind or
1: yeah i think it was russo spoke to me and russo said WWF magazine is going to be more storyline centric and raw magazine is going to be a little edgier. Mm -hmm. And Vince Russo was taking the lead in that regard. And so I kind of went with that. I felt he wasn't doing anything that he wasn't, uh, that he hadn't asked permission to do. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: I I, I still think that um, for me, the first uh, couple of years of uh, raw magazine are my favorite of all time uh, because it was just mind blowing, you know, like you're saying, the WWF magazine to read about WCW and uh, for the magazine to acknowledge its history and mention names that weren't with the company and all that kind of thing. And also, by '97, like the interviews were great, like there was one with uh, Dustin and uh, like really open and honest interviews as well. But that period for me, they kind of With the the more ridiculous characters, and there weren't as many by 1997. um, Those sort of over the top, uh, you know, flamboyant sort of characters like Mankind, Undertaker, and stuff like that. There was an element of realism given to them as well to explain why they were a certain way and all that kind of thing. So, was the um, were you able to kind of go into that more when interviewing those guys?
1: Yes, Uh, there was a period where. We were actually allowed to break the wall down, yeah, and and acknowledge that these were men uh, playing characters, mm-hmm. and uh, talk about their legitimate backgrounds and how they came to be in the industry. And of course, there was then there was an element of journalism to it, so it was uh, it was certainly satisfying to be able to do that, and it was consistent with the realistic storylines. So it was a very good place to be. And I remember being very happy being around WWE at the time. I remember being at the WrestleMania where, um, Stone Cold Steve Austin was finally crowned, but there had been a buildup to that. There'd been those realistic angles, you know, the USA versus Canada, you know, rivalry, which was very exciting and really smacked of realism. Yeah. And, um, you know, Stone Cold's whole character, his defiance, him, this bitterness that reflected his bitterness at the way he'd been treated elsewhere. And that was corresponding with the working man's bitterness about how his bosses treated him. The wit that Mick Foley would have even when he was delivering an insane mankind interview. You know, there was this deep intelligence and sarcasm and wit and poetry behind it. Yeah. So it was a great time to be around WWE.
0: It, it was such a, a fine line as well to be able to incorporate so many elements of real life, but not break kayfabe completely as well. Not by saying this is just a show, etc. You know, they could say wrestling hurts, course it does, but they weren't saying that we were, you know, you know, rehearsing matches or you know, giving finishes or whatever. And just th- that period to me. Is kind of for me the peak of WWF for me in terms that's of, true.
1: and that's also a reflection of your age. <laughs> that is true. That uh, is true. Again, again, I keep referencing this, um, you know, th- this this UK tournament. For somebody else, that will be the peak of their wrestling experience. Mm-hmm. If you're a fourteen-year-old kid living, you know, on a, a, a the Tooting Broadway uh, Tube Station in in, uh, in London, and you were there at Royal Albert Hall, and you saw Zach Gibson and Pete Dunn. That was the peak of your wrestling. That might be the peak of your wrestling experience, and you might compare everything to that moment.
0: That is true, I, but the thing is, with um, especially with the UK uh, tournament stuff, there's very much um, a throwback element into it. Like they've taken the best things. From history, like you know, with the there was a period where, especially on the indie scene, from what I saw and locally and stuff like that, where everyone was influenced by guys like the Hardy Boys and stuff, and just they were kind of and there's nothing wrong with that, but they were kind of doing cheap imitations of that. Whereas now, the this the emphasis on logical, realistic wrestling, I think, especially in WWE, is kind of back and it really. Is refreshing to see and one thing i do love about the uk tournament as well is that the ring doesn't make, look like it's made out of you know led lights and stuff like that
1: <laughs> right there's an old school there, there's there's an old school component to it mm-hmm. which folks like myself even though i'll be 60 years old next year no you know, to feel you know that like th- this old school intensity is back yeah that's pretty cool so watching Zach Gibson and Pete Dunn is not unlike me going down to Florida at age 12 or 13 to visit family there and seeing Jack Briscoe get in the ring with Dory Funk Jr. There's a believable intensity there. Absolutely. Um,
0: before we go into... Uh... And I don't want to keep you too long as well. But before we go into I I, I,
1: it pretty soon,
0: <laughs> um, before we go into a, a couple of different things with uh, the raw magazine, um, did you bring concepts in like fantasy warfare and the rankings and all that kind of thing? Oh,
1: that that was a lot of that was Rousseau. So, uh, oh, was it really? Uh, later on, later on um, was um, Barry Werner was the publisher, and he brought a lot of that in as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Was there, was there ever more pressure on having two distinctively different magazines? Because I think, and uh, did there become a point where you felt that Raw magazine and WWE magazine were kind of becoming the same thing anyway? By like the time where SmackDown magazine came in and all that kind of thing.
1: Um, I, I you know, there were so many discussions about what our identity would be, and that was always very fluid. And realize, I was not in the office. So I was, I was being given assignments because I remember Brian Solomon was the was the editor of Smackdown magazine. And I remember him expl- breaking down, this is what Smackdown magazine is going to be. So this is how we should do this story. And I just, you know, I was trying to be as versatile as possible.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. Um, well, I have probably actually everything I need to know about Raw magazine. Yeah, like, I knew I was going to get really nerdy and start going, like, really in-depth, and I could go more, but we'll we'll save that for part two at some point. But um, the uh, Ric Flair book, I, I really enjoy the book, but do you... Like, I felt like it didn't go in-depth as much as it could have. Like, a Ric Flair book now would be...
1: Oh, my goodness! Out of yeah. this world! Like, was... Although there, were, there was just that book that Rick and his daughter did together.
0: That's true. I haven't read that as well. Is, so you would recommend that?
1: Uh, I would. Yeah, yeah. Because we shouldn't be having that discussion until you've looked at that book. Okay. And you know, and then everything would be based on your interpretation.
0: Mm-hmm. But did, did you, um, with the first book though? Because um, the thing that came out of that really was the the feud with McFoley and Flair's comments about what Foley said in his book uh do looking back on it now do you feel that that kind of dates the book and kind of detracts from the overall book
1: no it's a snapshot it it wasn't comfortable being in the midst of that did Uh, did Rick really get worked up when he was talking about that kind of thing he certainly did Mm -hmm. um that, that that was legitimate yeah and you know he also knew that uh I was quite fond of Mick Foley, so you know it was, and I was fond fond of Bret Hart personally, you know, like yeah. the guys I, I I like, you know, liked and like still to this day, but I was his co-author, um, but uh, you know, and so my first obligation was to make sure he wrote the book that best reflected him, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think it dates the book. I think it's a snapshot of how those people felt at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful that as the years have passed, these people have been able to bridge those, those gaps, just like in any
2: other relationship. That's
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it, actually really it took maybe that book to ignite their working relationship on screen in 2006 when they had those great matches. And that led and to great then... Promos.
1: Yeah. Great, great promos, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So with... um with Billy Graham's book um, and I guess with any of the books that you have uh, written, were there was there a list of no-go subjects that you just Not Billy Graham, no, certainly His not. was particularly, <laughs> there's something about the, that book and his documentary um, especially at that time for to be read that it was, it was so
1: raw, like so wrong. Um, Yeah. No, no, there wasn't any limitations with Graham In fact, this found Graham to be a very amusing character, uh, and not as a wrestler, as a person, and even the fact that he, um, that they had legal issues between them, they seemed to be kind of almost charmed by it, you know, and like he told the story that uh, Graham being deposed when there was some legal problem with the company and then he ran into the WWE lawyer in the bathroom and acknowledged like essentially man you guys are working me hard it was like almost like after a wrestling match saying good heat brother
2: <laughs> now, you know, there weren't any limitations and I will tell you an anecdote about that
1: which is a story I recently recounted to somebody um, when we were writing the book, Graham and I spent a lot of time together, um, and really grew close, and really had a lot of fun together. And so there was one day we went out for Mexican food in Phoenix, and, you know, we walked into a restaurant, and the waitress was a very attractive waitress, and we were talking to her about her, her tattoos, and she... Uh, Said, "Who are you guys?" Like she thought we looked both like
2: kind of characters. She goes, "Well, I'm the former WWE World Heavyweight Champion, and this is my co-author." And she just looked at us like, "Could you come up with something better than that?" And was like, because no. she could never conceive that we were telling the truth. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so with uh, with the Billy grain book. Um... Even though he, you know, could have really said a lot of uh,
2: negative things, like, was that ever really an issue? Uh, at the time, he had a good, close working relationship with Deputy Deputy. Yes.
0: And, and the thing is now, he's under a legend's contract, but if you see his Facebook post, he's really not afraid to <laughs> give his opinion.
3: Do um,
0: <laughs> I Which I really respect as well, because, like, you know, you've got to stay by what you believe in. And actually, his posts are very... Uh, they, they are controversial, but that's what you'd expect from Billy Graham. But, um, you know, he makes a lot of sense as well.
1: Really, will a lot of things I'll let Neil and the Superstar discuss that between the two of you without, you know, rendering an opinion on
0: that. Okay. <laughs> well, he's not Roman Reigns' biggest fan, put it that way. But. <laughs> uh, not what? We he's not Roman Reigns' biggest We're fan.
1: No, guys. no. Thank and, you know, yeah. again, that's... <laughs> That's his opinion. I'm not going to comment on that.
0: But that's what makes talking about wrestling so fun. Uh, Um, So were there any just, um, and I know you weren't in the office, but were there any, uh, top of your head, any articles or concepts like for magazines that were
1: just scrapped and thrown by the wayside? I mean, there probably, I mean, if if I had a day to remember, (laughs) I'm sure I could recount conversations about it. Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting before Bruno was in the Hall of Fame, uh, there was among the people who grew up watching Bruno, there was always this desire to kind of give him his due, what he deserved. And, um, you know, I can remember once writing something about great WWF champions and you know I'm a mark for Bruno so I just went on and on about Bruno and someone circled it this was when everything was on paper and wrote like more Bruno like <laughs> like enough of. Enough Bruno we know you love Bruno stop <laughs> Amazing.
0: Um, Well, look, I I don't want to keep you uh, too much longer because I know you're incredibly busy and um, I feel lucky that I was able to uh, get you for an hour as well. But um, what um, projects do you have out that are recent and uh, what do you have upcoming?
1: Um, I have a book coming out in Canada in uh, the fall by ECW Press, Mm -hmm. the same company that did a lot of the wrestling books and that's about the Jeff Healy band. Um, that's about Canada's, probably Canada's greatest blues guitarist. I wrote it with his, the late Jeff Healy's drummer, Tom Steven. And then I have another book that's being published by Hal Leonard. Um, they're the same company that did the, the book I wrote about John Lennon in 2010. And this is about rock and roll murders. Because oh. as Seems, okay. cool. I write about rock and roll, and I write about true crime. So th- this merges two of them.
0: uh we're gonna have to if 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 we can do a part two as a musician. I would love to be able to chat to you about music um, for an hour, and uh, especially go into this. Uh, you know the history of rock and, uh, music crimes as well, which uh, so many questions. So it's a lot of it based on. Um, I mean, obviously, as a journalist, you want it to be factual, but there are, I'm guessing, a lot of uh, conspiracy theories and stuff like that. That kind of stuff really fascinates you. The
1: the conspiracy theories are acknowledged. Um, I was in the UK while I was researching the book um, and in Sweden, and I spoke to folks who uh, knew Brian Jones, and they have their theories about what happened, and that's included in the book. But this is another conversation for another day. This is
0: another conversation. And before we go, what's your favorite band?
1: Uh, My favorite band, the Beatles, of course.
0: Of course. Um, So so I guess you've been to the Cavern Club and done all the... I have,
1: and I may be going back to Liverpool for another project in the not-too-distant future, and and I will be at the Cavern Club.
0: This is interesting. We just played the Cavern Club. Uh, They have a a Power Pop Festival there once a year, and we're lucky enough to be able to play it, and the guy comes from L.A. to do it. And, uh, yeah, I, I love playing the Cavern Club. So when you're in Liverpool let me know i would love to come and shake your hand and get a couple of things signed because i'm a
1: nerd um <laughs> but me and you both good it would be a pleasure to hang out with you and you know then we'll really talk right like... then we'll really talk wrestling right now as
0: i'm looking at you you have that wonderful royal rumble 89 poster behind you and there are a few vents that i have a very unhealthy obsession with so two-part question when an event came up like that did you just get a ton of promotional cool stuff and uh do you have a favorite piece of merchandise
2: uh, or memorabilia? I'd uh, have to think about that. Brian Solomon, he—he he even got ended up with a pair of Freddie Blassie slippers. Uh, <laughs> but I—I um, um, I remember there just being a bunch of posters around, and I said, "Can I take this?" And nobody seemed to. Uh, what's this? Sorry, I don't know. I. Oh, is that you? Nope. Uh, sorry, I, um, I, um, you know, I remember those posters just being around, and um, I said, "Can I take this?" And whoever was there said, "Sure, uh, you know, the, the event is over. Yeah, take it." Um, so, so, I took it. I have a couple of other things also that I took at other events, but those were usually posters for events that had passed, Of course, no one realized. 25 years later or 30 years later, the historical significance that those posters would have.
0: That is true, and the collectability as well. Like, I've almost bankrupted myself buying some of this stuff, but it's still a lot of fun to sit on eBay at, like, 3 a.m. Like I, I, I'm, Before we go, I'll tell you one thing. Um, because my internet is running a little slow at the moment, and this will embarrass you, but it's because I have about 26 tabs open on eBay of uh, magazines. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking to buy that will will have your work all over them. A lot of them are the poster magazines um, because I had them back in the day as a kid. But you know, I would pin them up and actually use them for their intended purpose. But now, now that I'm like kind of a serious collector, I have no fun whatsoever. Like I'll have a what? magazine
2: and take no posters out. You know. <laughs> If if, if I, I could go upstairs, it would take me a while to find them, but I actually have those
0: magazines here. Oh, see, okay, we're, it, next time you're free, we're just going to compare rem- wrestling memorabilia, I think, but I think <laughs> that'll be a lot of fun. But, Keith, uh, Mr. Greenberg, uh, thank you very much for spending an hour of your time. It has been so much fun, and I really would love to chat music with you at some point as well. Um same here so I think we'll have a lot of fun but uh, thank you for coming on the show and I uh, will talk to you again
2: thank you pleasure man goodbye
0: goodbye
3: goodbye goodbye, goodbye.